Good morning. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and we're calling the sermon Trouble in Paradise. Now, as we look at this important part of the grand story that we're looking at from the Old Testament, 31 weeks going through the whole Old Testament narrative, uh, this is probably one of the most important pieces. And because when we talk about our fallenness, our moral brokenness, our rebellion, and yes, our sin, in today's contemporary thinking, all sorts of baggage comes up when we talk about it. It's one of those things that we're not permitted to say. I remember uh, not long ago, Noel and I and someone else, was it Lewis? We're sitting around a breakfast spot in Westboro, just talking about how we wanted to see people come to Christ. It was actually a very positive conversation. A woman sitting next to us took such exception to the notion that people are in need of grace, that people are in need of fixing, that we're victims of other people's problems, that we don't have our own. We need relief, not transformation. And that, to me, is is how our culture is. So what I want to do is give you quickly, as we get into this this morning, two illustrations to kind of set yourself to receive gracefully, to receive in a positive way what we're about to look at today. The first illustration is related to... uh, being lost and and needing to find your way. You know, today we have MapQuest and our GPS systems in our cars and Google Maps on our iPhones. They show you where you want to go, but in order to work, they have to tell you where you are to start with, right? You see where you want to go, then you say directions. Message comes up and says, may we have permission to use your current location? Because you can't get to where you want to go If you don't understand where you are, that's the part of the story we're at today. We're putting a pin on our life map, not to stay there, not to have us feel beaten down. That's not the purpose of this. It's to help us understand where we are so that God can move us to where he wants us to be. Uh, The second illustration has to do with uh, sickness. I want you to imagine that you are ill, you don't know it yet, but a doctor does, and more importantly, as scary as the diagnosis is, the prognosis is pretty good because the odds of uh, recovery are very high in your case. But something has to happen before you can get there. You have to be diagnosed. The doctor has to sit you down and give you the bad news. And then you have to give the doctor permission to administer the cure. That's what we're doing today. The diagnosis can be sobering when we look at our needs and our brokenness, but it's an act of love. Remember what Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Contrary to modern mythology, the the idea of sin in the Bible is not meant to bring us down to dump guilt on us, to make us feel bad and and feel like all God wants to do is hold us down. God wants you to understand your condition because as the master physician, he wants to offer you the remedy. It's those two pictures I want you to think of as we come to this. We're finding our bearings because a loving God wants to lead us to a path of healing. But in order to do that, we have to look at the diagnosis. And that's where we are in Genesis chapter 3. Whether we want to deny it or call it something else, in our hearts, all of us know something is wrong. 
We'd rather pretend it's not there. We'd rather believe in the essential goodness of the human race and believe that if we just worked hard enough and knew enough and, and started early enough with our kids that it would all turn out right. But our hearts and our experience tells us that in spite of all that positive thinking, there's something wrong. Figuring out what's wrong and how to fix it is extremely important. And I, I just want to underscore the importance of it by quoting a woman named Beatrice Webb, whom many consider to be the architect of Britain's modern welfare state. She was part of the intellectual elite in the early 1900s. She founded the London School of Economics. She was a socialist and a secularist. She kept a diary her whole life. And in 1925, this is what she writes. Somewhere in my diary, I think 1890, I wrote, quote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I recognize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us, how little you can count on changing some of these. For instance, the appeal of wealth and power by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulses. How can we have better social institutions. That's a fascinating quote from a woman who devoted her life to the idea that people are essentially good, and therefore, if we just create the right system, society will flourish. And given the privilege of creating those very systems, finding that the brokenness in man prevails, and the systems themselves aren't the problem. It's us. We're the, we're the problem. History shows without argument that there is something inherently wrong with us a selfishness, a violence, a corruption in business and politics, war, atrocities are consistent and rampant across history. Education, science, technology can't explain it or fix it. Who will explain it? And is there a remedy for it? And that's the story of Scripture. In Genesis 3 is where we first come to see exactly what went wrong. But before we in detail look at uh, this, I want to review for you just quickly when life was good, when life was very good, in fact, because that's what it's spoken of in Genesis chapter 2, how God created us. We spent a fair amount of time the last couple of weeks looking at the good earth that God created and that he put us in for his pleasure, the, the sacred cadence of life and then who we were meant to be in that creation. But what I want to do is look at four aspects of the life we were meant to live. Later on, we're going to look at how the fallenness of the race impacted every one of those things. The first one was a friendship with God. Nothing about our life matters more and should give us more meaning than a relationship with our Creator. That's, that's what it meant to be created in His image both body and soul, spiritual beings, so we could commune and walk with God. So there was this incredible intimacy, both personal and eternal, with God. The second aspect of life we were meant to live is family. It's very clear that the family is God's core building block for his society, male and female. He created them to be fruitful and to multiply, and spoke directly of marriage as a man leaving his father and mother, cleaving to his wife, and the two becoming one flesh. And so this idea of family, intimate social relationships is, is critical to the life we were meant to live. But there are certain aspects of it that are often overlooked. 
One of the things that I find most tantalizing in the pre-fall existence of Adam and Eve, you picture the scene where he wakes up and this woman comes at him. And some of you have heard me say, I think how the name came was that he woke up and went, whoa, man. And God said, I I like that. We'll go with that. (laughs) And then this thing happens that is implied. It says, for this reason, whatever we're looking at right now in the scene, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. That's sex. Now, one of the things that's amazing about our culture is how they think the fall in the Bible was the discovery of sex. That to them is the fall. Sex was the result of the knowledge of good and evil and sort of a wink that says, yeah, it was bad, but... It really wasn't, was it? Sex is clearly a part of God's original plan. And it was wonderful, naked without shame kind of sex. And it is the sex that we long for. Why in some of our favorite songs when we talk about our love for each other, why do we use phrases like, it's like paradise. It's a match made in heaven. Why do those words find their way into our ideals for relationships? Because I think deep inside of us, we know that there was something better than even the intimacy we experience with each other today that God intended. Remember, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Last time I checked, you can't do that without sex. So please don't let people suggest this idea that Eve suddenly became the sensual woman when she ate the apple, as though the apple was the fruit. I mean, there's so much mythology that's built up here. And it's all designed to deflect from the fact that there was a life that we were meant for, and we're not living it. And as part of it was a relationship between a man and a woman that was better than anyone has experienced since. Family. Intimacy. Third area, meaningful work. Globally, man was to subdue the earth, which means to harness it, to use its resources, to rule over it, which means to manage in a beneficent way, to be stewards of creation. And then when he's put in the garden, those same ideas are brought down to hands-on tasks in that setting. They are to tend the garden, harness the garden, and they are to care for it. We were created for work. We're meant to be productive. When we get in that zone, when we're doing something that flows out of who God made us to be, and we're experiencing the blessing of that, we know how fulfilling that is. We're meant to work. But that work is a partner to the fourth area, which is playful rest. And that's the Sabbath. The pause that refreshes, if I may use that phrase. We were meant to be in the sacred dance with God between meaningful work, productive, God-honoring, fulfilling work, and pausing to revel in the creation that God gave us. Meaningful work, joyful play, and rest. That's the life we were meant for. That's a pretty good life if you think about it. Those kind of relationships, vertical and horizontal, that type of purposeful living, with opportunity, because time was our friend back then, opportunity to pause and enjoy and worship and delight. That's what we were meant to have. Now we're going to look at how things got so bad. And I just want to summarize this by talking about three aspects of this first act of rebellion, and we're going to call them this, a dis, a deception, 
and a decision. The first is a dis, and it's found in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty, scheming, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, here's the phrase we're going to look at, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this is where a lot of us could get lost. Why the serpent? Where did Satan come from? All those details, but that's not what the purpose of this story is. The purpose is you and me. What matters here is that this is Satan communicating and tempting. And so what he brings is this this skepticism, this snickeriness. Did God really say? That same word can be translated indeed. He's mocking what God said, not honestly questioning it. He's ridiculing it, trying to get Adam and Eve to laugh at it. You got to really say that. Come on. And that first step to rebellion is rampant in the human race still today. I think back to people that have given me a hard time for my faith. Very rarely is it a meaningful argument that they're presenting. Most often, it's ridicule. You really believe that? Think about all the comics on TV today that are actually political pundits. By ridicule of opposite points of view, most often the conservative point of view, making everybody laugh at it, then you try to hold them accountable to it, what do they say? I'm just the comic. I'm just the comic. No, you're not. You're impacting social opinion more than any reasonable argument. See, the first thing to dismissing something is to get us to laugh at it, to be embarrassed by it, to believe that people with common sense think otherwise. We lose our faith far more by that attitude than by argument. That exists on our universities and college campuses. We're the object of ridicule by professors and by others who say common sense would say otherwise. And the laughter gets us first, and so we shut up. And then we start putting the answers down on paper that we know will get us the better grades. And before you know it, we've lost our footing in the things that we were meant to joyfully hold with conviction. It's really fear of ridicule. That's at the heart of a lot of our disbelief. The second thing he does is a deception, a half-truth, right? Let's read verses 2 through 5. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the, the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, let me just pause. Is Eve giving an accurate report? No. God never says don't touch it. So already you see Eve buying into the joke a little bit, exaggerating it, making it seem worse. And that leads us to what the real deception was. Verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here is the deception. What really is at the core of Satan's attack is the notion that God can't be trusted. God hasn't told you everything because he knows that you can become like him. The great deception is labeling God as the cosmic killjoy. Think about it. Why do we say, I know the Bible says I shouldn't sleep with this person I'm not married to, but it would be great. I shouldn't spend all this money on myself. I should give it away, but it would be great to have this or own that or to do that. 
Why do we say, I'm not supposed to hold a grudge or seek revenge, but boy, it feels good when I do. None of these would be temptations for you if in your heart you believed you could honestly trust God, trust his goodness. What I want you to see is that this rebellion, this path of rebellion has so marked us that it's become who we are. Notice he doesn't challenge the existence of God, doesn't challenge the holiness of God, challenges the goodness of God. That's the great deception. And that leads to a decision. What was the great sin that ruined the human race? (laughs) They took it and they ate it? Really? It's not exactly one of the top ten, the big ten that God would later give. What really is the big deal about a tree in the garden? And why would God do that? Why would God set them up for failure anyway? Well, now think about it. The issue isn't the opportunity to sin. The fact is, our mere existence creates the opportunity. That God created us with free choice means it doesn't mean what the object was. The real conflict in us is not whether or not we eat that particular fruit. The real conflict within us is, do I trust God's goodness, and am I willing to let God be God? That's what the tree symbolizes. Notice God doesn't give a detailed explanation to them of why not. If you eat that, there will be endless misery for you and your offspring. All of life and creation will be twisted and at odds with life that you now know, and it'll be miserable forever. God didn't say that to them. Why didn't he? Because then if they obeyed him, it would just be on the basis of cost-benefit analysis. I'm going to obey God because it's the best thing for me. Because the alternative is worse than the obedience. See, we were created to trust in a good God, to trust his best for us. God's really saying to them, you can either choose to treat me as God, choose to live life as I intended it, or you can choose to live life like your God and can do whatever you want. You can treat me as God, or you can put yourself in the place of God. Isn't that, in the end, what Satan held up to them? You will be like God. And there's the heart of our sin, of all sin, of all rebellion. Choosing to not trust in the goodness and therefore the good purposes of God, and in not trusting him to put ourselves in his place and to set our own course. And I think that those three things have marked us. They've marked us forever. The dis, the deception, and the resulting decisions that we make over and over again. Let me just quickly talk about what happened as a result of it. The fallout that came from the fall. Understanding what we call theologically original sin. We want to look at it from the perspective of the life we were meant to live. What was the first thing we talked about? It was our relationship with God. What happened to that relationship? God comes down to once again walk with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the day. Where are they? They're in hiding. So a relationship with God that was pure and intimate and innocent and joyful 
is replaced with a relationship of shame and hiding. It's interesting. It says their eyes were open, and then later on it confirms they did indeed know good from evil. Here's another myth that our culture creates around this story. First of all, it's the myth that our sensual pleasures are all part of uh, what happened after the fall, and that's the good stuff of life, therefore we needed it. Instead of recognizing that sensuality in its purest form was part of our, our original life, and it's somehow twisted now. Nothing is ever fulfilling enough. It's all habit-forming because we always need more of it. That's what's happened with our sensualities. They've been broken. It's a black hole that never gets filled. It always requires more. But here's another thing. It's often confused by people that say the fall gave us the knowledge of right and wrong, and therefore we needed the fall. And that's not true either. There's a big difference between what the Bible means by the knowledge of good and evil and knowing right and wrong. Think about it. Did Adam and Eve know right and wrong before Genesis chapter 3? Yes, they did. It's a very short list of wrong, but they knew there was right and they knew there was wrong. God had taught them that through the tree in the garden. They understood right and wrong. What does it mean that they had the knowledge of good and evil? Knowledge in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew language, is always experiential. It's like the difference between a doctor who knows cancer in and out because he studied it his whole life. He knows cancer. And those of us here that know cancer from experiencing it, we know what it's like to have that in our body in the body of our loved ones, waging war against us. When the Bible says that Adam and Eve knew good and evil, they had already known the good. They had experienced the good. What was added to that body of experience was the evil inside. They became sickened by it. And that produced shame and hiding. One of the saddest phrases in all the Bible is, where are you? Adam, where are you? God crying out. It's interesting as we go through this to see how many questions God asks Adam and Eve. God doesn't need any of this information. So why is he asking the questions? Not because of what he needs to know, but because of what Adam and Eve needed to know. He's engaging them to draw out responses that help them understand what has happened, which shows his grace towards them. He never does that with the serpent, only with Adam and Eve. So the relationship with God's broken, but God's still reaching. But they're hiding in shame. Family, look at what happens with family. From being one flesh to a conflict, huge conflict. The result of the fall is the battle for sexual superiority, the, the conflict between men and women. It's clearly indicated here. Men using their brute force to rule over women. Women using their conniving skills. It's sort of captured best by my big fat Greek wedding where, where the mom says to the daughter, who knows dad won't let her do something, she says, listen, the husband may be the head, but the wife is the neck, and the wife can turn the head any way she wants. That whole conflict was set up because of the fall. It wasn't intended to be that way. Conflict in the family. They go from being naked and unashamed to being naked and embarrassed. There wasn't a change in wardrobe. There was a change in personal outlook. Not only hiding from God, but covering and hiding from each other. What else happens? They go from being one flesh. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And what's the first thing he says about the woman when God speaks to him? 
She did it. Send her to hell. Give me a new one. Yeah, that's one of the results of sin, that we will do anything now to justify ourselves, including throwing the people around us that we're meant to sacrifice for, letting them sacrifice for us, throwing them under the bus. Let's admit it. Rarely do any of us have arguments in our marriages where we are not bound and twisted by our desperate need to be right, to prove that we're right and that we're not wrong. One of the greatest lies that Satan has convinced us to say is this, I'm as good as you are. Adam throws Eve under the bus, Eve throws the serpent under the bus justifying, protecting ourselves at the expense of others around us. And this is not just true of our individual families, but it's true of the family of humanity. Like father and mother, like sons and daughters, right down through the generations. This is exactly what the concept of original sin is. It's that we are hardwired for selfishness. All of us are hardwired for selfishness. Elites and common people, industrialists and socialists, fiscal conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, and yes, even independents are not independent from selfishness. The problem is not whatever structure we think is ruining us. The problem is our moral brokenness. Let me just read quickly a quote from C.E.M. Joe. This is all out of that same period when our culture was dramatically shifted by the secular intellectuals that came out of the Enlightenment in the early 1900s, radically challenged our notions, relinquishing, letting go of original sin and embracing this idea of infinite perfectibility of the human race. You still see that everywhere someone in their worldview says that people are at their core actually good, and they only become bad because evil happens to them, and that if we just get it right, people will do the right thing. And then when that doesn't happen, we just blame whatever political system is in power for all the trouble. We go back and forth between one form of politics and another form of politics, and we never really make progress. Why? Because at the heart of it is who we are. C.E.M. Judd was part of that same brain trust. But later on, towards the end of his life, he recovered his faith and he wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. And this is what he wrote. It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable. Disappointed by the subservience of intellect to emotion. Disappointed by the failure of true socialism to arrive. Disappointed by the behavior of nations and politicians. By the masses' preference for Hollywood to Shakespeare and for Mr. Sinatra to Beethoven. Above all, and above all disappointed by the recurrent fact of war. This is the reality. That's what Genesis 3 is crying out to all of us helping us put a pin to say, you are here. Besides that breakdown of the relationships with God and family, what happened to meaningful work? Meaningful work becomes toil and labor, and the earth stops being our friend. We have to work through the weeds and the tares in order to get at the good stuff of the earth. What happens to our joyful rest? Sabbath, which is a rehearsal for eternity. Now, from the dust you were created to the dust you will return, time now becomes our enemy. There is no joyful pause. There's just going for all the gusto you can while you're around. That's where we're left for no other reason except spoken in love, our rebellion.
our decision that in the end, God's notions are laughable, his goodness is not tenable, and I'll do better by making decisions on my own. That's all that happened in Genesis 3. And if I'm not mistaken, that happens in each of your lives probably every day you live. But fortunately, even at this stage in the journey, this reality check, this hard place to be, like the good doctor that comes to you and says, yeah, you're sick, but I've got a cure. We see immediately here glimpses of redemption. Two quick things here. One is this promise to the Satan symbol that the seed of the woman will crush his head. That's called the Proto-Evangelium, the, the first indication of the good news, the gospel, that from the seed of the woman, this would be Christ, he would come, as John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of Man came to do what? To destroy the work of the devil. So we see this promise that what Satan had succeeded at, achieving brokenness in the human race, that there would come one who would destroy that work. And then in the garments that were made by God, the shedding of blood, we see the first symbolism of the shedding of blood that would occur. Tens of thousands of sacrificial animals from that day on until the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, hung on a cross and laid his life down for us. Here is the glimpse of redemption. Think about this. There was... At the beginning of our recorded history, a garden in which Adam and Eve struggled with a moral choice. And 2,000 years ago, there was a garden in Gethsemane where the Son of God struggled with a moral choice to obey the Father's will for the joy set before him or to find another way. In the Garden of Eden, mankind made a choice that brought sin into this world. They ate from the tree, and sin brought death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Son of God made a choice to present himself to the goodness of his Father. He also went to a tree. He was suspended on that tree. Adam and Eve brought sin. He took sin. Sin brought death. The Lamb of God brings life. This is just a pinpoint in the map of your life, not to have you stay there, not to get you stuck, not to condemn you, because Christ didn't come to condemn the world. He came so that the world through him might be healed, might be saved. Amazing that even the darkest news in God's word at the core of it is the good news, the best news of all. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. The bold honesty that drags us out of our denial and our hiding and calls to us. I pray that, that we won't fear this conversation, but that we'll embrace it as a conversation that a loving God wants to have with us as he did with Adam and Eve crying out to each of us, where are you? And then taking us from there and moving us forward into grace. In Jesus' name, amen.